Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Ben, take it away. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks everyone for, for making some time to, to listen. Hopefully um, it will be more of a conversation, a webinar versus a conversation. And so I have a bunch of notes that you'll you'll probably see me reading from, but um, as I try to organize my thoughts, but please jump in with with questions um, and and push me on things to the extent that, that something's not clear. So yeah, so as Eric said, I, I was at first round most recently. And before that, I had a fitness video game startup and I was the creative director at AM1. Um, sort of coming out of college, and that's sort of my my professional uh, career so far. Uh, while I was at first round, I, I got to work on a on a ton of things, um, build partnerships with with companies in healthcare like um, Patient Paying and Clover Health, uh, sort of in the low code, no code, whatever you want to call it, space like Notion and um, Glide and Clay, subscription economy, Blue Apron and and Birchbox, and also Steady, Clearbit, uh, Persona, Modern Fertility, uh, some others. So. Got to work with some amazing entrepreneurs um, and, and got to build some things like Dormarm Fund, um, AngelTrack, uh, and recruit partners and sort of help to take the firm from four partners and four admins and a CFO when I joined to sort of what it is today, which is like 43 people and a huge platform, et cetera. Um, and so sort of happy to share my point of view on any of that. If, if folks sort of offline are thinking about joining a firm or, or starting one, have a lot of thoughts about what makes for a successful uh, partnership as well as for successful firms, uh, brand building, et cetera. The, the thing I wanted to talk about today and, and um, something that, that I sort of studied uh, over the last 10 years at first round is the concept of the, the founder interview. And, and I think that when people decide to shift from uh, their primary attention being on uh, operating um, to to investing, uh, it is one of the things, one of the skills that you can really focus on um, and and get much better at. And so, I wanted to talk through a couple of kind of foundational beliefs that I hold around uh, investing, and then I'll go into some specifics, uh, hopefully actionable for you all, around questions you can ask and areas to push on, and then uh, a second piece on specifically how to think about asking those questions so that you get the best information. Uh, so, so first, I think I would say, in my experience, investing is simple, but it's super hard. And simple meaning the things you need to do are pretty obvious. Uh, you know, access great entrepreneurs, decide which ones you want to partner with, convince them to partner with you, and then support them in in the, their success, and then repeat the process. And and so I think that it's it's simple, but each of those things is very hard. Um, and hopefully, this twenty forty minutes, whatever it ends up being. Um, is a way to help you get better at the decide part and, and also some of the win part. So a second thing that, that I've come to believe about investing is that your investment partnership is a product that a founder buys with their equity. Uh, as an investor, you're definitely on the sell side. And I sort of think about that as like every time a, an investor has, has said yes to a founder, given them a term sheet, um, in that moment, you're effectively saying your equity is worth more than my money. Like, please take my money. Um, and, and so you really need to think about being on the sell side of the equation rather than the buy side where you sort of show up late to meetings unprepared and sit back and ask someone sort of what they've got for you. It's also a hard product to generate a high MPS because you, you need to earn, you know, high satisfaction from customers, but you're in a world where 99% of customers don't get what they want because just by the odds, you're going to say no to 99% of people. And so you have this problem as a, as a PM of your investor product that you have to create something that will people will refer to their friends even when they don't get what they want. And, and so I think the way you actually approach the interview with a founder, your engagement with them well before the investment um, is probably your highest leverage uh, point of distribution for you know, your reputation in the market. Uh, I think there's clearly you can do things that, that help founders after you've invested, but the vast majority of founders you interact with, you're never going to invest in. And, and so really focusing actually on how you want that product, the pre-investment product to be perceived um, is, is a critical piece of kind of building your reputation as an investor. Um, I don't think there's a right way to be an investor, but there's, I think I've seen lots of wrong ways, both as an entrepreneur and, and, and as an investor. 
And I can't tell if it's if it's correlation or, or causation, but in my experience, like being an investor makes most people into arrogant assholes. There's just sort of this incredible thing that happens when you have money, all of a sudden there's this power thing that you assume and people start to act in ways that um, they they maybe wouldn't have expected. Uh, I think it sort of erodes empathy for the founders and and it tends to amplify a sense of importance, intelligence, foresight, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, and I think that these are things that you really need to be hyper aware of both in yourself, but also because as you ap- as you act as an investor, when a founder meets you, they're bringing a lot of expectations to that meeting. And so they're going to, in some ways, interpret a lot of things that you do uh, through the negative lens that comes from the reputation that, that many investors have and, and sort of the, the ghosting and blowing people off and, and some of that arrogance. I think you have to be hyper, hyper sensitive because even if what you're putting in the world is neutral, it can be interpreted as, as negative. And so, so for me, I was thinking back on when I decided to become an investor and, and sort of what that meant, how I could get better. And, you know, what, what I've come to is, is being an investor, your job is basically to imply, apply your judgment to information that you have about a company. And then when you're able to find a partnership with that founder, um, then you do everything you can to support their success. And so if you think about that as the fundamental role and you want to think about how to get better, you can, you can improve the quality of the pool that you're, that you're fishing in. So you can, you can work on your network and your access and, and hope that on average, all the founders you meet with are better and therefore the selections you make will be better companies. You can improve the quality of the information you have. Uh, so the, what do you know about the founder? What do you know about the company? What do you know about the market? Um, and hopefully that helps you make better decisions. Uh, you can improve the quality of your judgment, but I think the only way to really do that is through experience over a long period of time and the, the feedback loops are, are very long. And then you can improve the quality of your support that you offer to founders, which is effectively coaching. And, and so for me, in joining First Round and then thinking about how to get better, I really became obsessed with, with how to improve the quality of the information that I was gathering. So the interview, which is what I'm going to talk about mostly today. And then how to improve the quality of the support, which was the coaching. And the reason that I picked both of those things is because my experience in becoming an investor was lots of people telling me, oh my God, that's amazing. Congratulations. Now, good luck and go find the next Stripe, Uber, Facebook, you know, whatever it is that was their point of reference for a successful company. And it just wasn't very helpful. But if you break investing down into those commiserate pieces and you focus on interviewing and coaching, each of those topics is broadly written about. Um, studied, uh, et cetera. There's, there's lots of approaches to both. So you can kind of pick and choose like interviewing. You can interview like a recruiter. Um, you can interview like a journalist, but you can interview like a law enforcement person, <laughs> coaching like an executive coach, like a life coach, basketball coach. And, and so I think, I think there was lots of examples that, that I could sort of draw from. Uh, what I've tried to do in, in sort of drafting out some thoughts to, to share with you all is take my lessons from, I, I went back and looked and I partnered at first round and, and as an angel with 63 founders at this point. I think my average is about 150 to one in terms of meetings versus uh, investments. So that's 9,450 interviews. Uh, and and this is this is sort of um, hopefully a summary of the things that I've learned and, and organized in a way that's actionable, you know, for, for you all. Um, so the first thing I'll say, because most of you are operators, is... Um, there's this thing when you think about um, the the analogy is sort of chocolate souffle or brownies, right? And if you if you think about chocolate souffle or brownies, they have a lot of the same ingredients, right? And so, the danger of being good as an operator, whether you're in product, engineering, you know, BD, whatever it is, is, and then you decide to be an investor, is that when a founder comes to you, and they start talking about, you know, the chocolate, the sugar, the butter the milk, cream, et cetera, how they're going to put it all together in your head, you're saying, what would I do with those ingredients? Right. And, and you're imagining this like molten center chocolate lava cake and, and, you know, this, this souffle cake. And so then you decide to invest, right. And you tell the founder, like, I'm in, this is amazing. I can't wait. You wire the money a month later, the founder comes back with a tray of brownies and they say, look what I did. And you say, Oh my God, what did you do? This is horrible. This is not what you should have done. And you're really upset about your investment because you want a chocolate souffle and they came back with brownies. But the truth is, in the first meeting and in every conversation you have with them, they were talking about brownies, but you didn't hear it because you were thinking about what would I do 
with my operating expertise with these ingredients. And I think that that mindset shift from what would I do with this opportunity to what is the founder going to do with this opportunity is a critical thing as you as you think about sort of taking what you know as an operator and applying it as an investor. And so when when you try to start doing that, I think you want you want to remember that a successful use of your time as an investor is when you spend time with a founder, you're gathering information. The goal is to support you making a great decision. There's it to create a good product for the founder, but the goal of that time is for you to make a better decision. Um, and I think that when you do that, the the thing that was most helpful to me was shifting from sort of open-minded curiosity when I met with founders to coming into that meeting with with a position uh, around the business. What was exciting? Obviously, something was exciting because I decided to take the meeting in the first place. But with a specific point of view that I was trying to ask questions about to validate or disprove my beliefs about the company, um, so that I could ultimately get to a yes or no uh, on the business. And I think as you go through that time with the founder, always having a position at each moment as sort of new information comes out as to whether you're closer to the thesis that you had and more excited, further from the thesis and, and less excited, or maybe further from the thesis, but even more excited than, than what you thought coming in. Um, but remembering that, that like your goal in that meeting is to get to a yes or no, or identify additional kind of open questions that will help you make a better decision to, to sort of validate or, or disprove your assumptions about the business. Um, you can make a list of kind of, you know, facts that you want to validate, assumptions that the founder has that you want to push on with other folks that you know, um, you know, higher level questions about the CEO or team dynamic, these types of things, um, writing them down to be able to then leave that meeting, go do that work and come back to the founder um, ultimately with an answer. Um, and and so I think I think when you think about doing that, you want to structure the interview, right? And, and if you've done recruiting, everybody talks about structured interviews being much, much better than just random kind of conversations. And I think that you can actually get very good at structuring the interview um, with a little bit of prep work. It doesn't take a ton of time. And, you know, everyone will tell you like they have some version of asking about product and market and team and figuring out what you want to know. And, and I'll get into some of that. But I think those three things miss one really important ingredient. And this goes back to product, which is the missing ingredient um, is the relationship or the tone that you want to set with the founder. Uh, and, and you want to do this for two reasons. One is it will dramatically affect the quality of the information you're able to gather. And then two, it'll affect your ability to, to win, to get allocation in the, in the opportunity, um, you know, should you decide that you, that you want to. And so I think when you think about that relationship, that, that should be your highest order bit. People talk about recruiting for companies. And I know some folks that will spend the first sort of 15 minutes of any interview, making sure that if the next 45 minutes go well and they want to hire the person, that that person will say yes. And so it's almost like the opening 15 minutes is like a sell job. Um, I don't think you need to go that far, but I do think that you want to make the founder super comfortable, feel respected, and and make sure they know that you care about this time you're spending with them, that you value the time. And, and I think in doing that, you can you get to ground truth much more quickly you get the founder very comfortable expressing what they really believe about the opportunity, why they're going after it, and how they see the world, and away from sort of the sales pitch, which which can be um, sort of like the talking points. Uh, and then also because you're showing them a tremendous amount of respect when you ask to be included in the investment, I think the probability they say yes, I think goes goes way way up. Um, and and so I think focusing on the relationship is is super important. I think a lot of people jump right to the questions about sort of product market team um, to to make your investment decision without remembering that one you want the truth about that stuff and then two you want the founder to say yes when when you say you want them when you say you want to invest um, and so I think I think to that end like questions questions that expose you've done some work right so and you care about them as a person right where are they from what brought them to the Bay Area if you if you're in San Francisco or now you know we're virtual so knowing where they're calling from or like, why are they spending time in Provo, Utah? You know, if you've done some background work on them, right? If you if you see that they worked at a company where you know someone, asking them if they know that person, right? Oh, I saw you worked at Twitter. Do you know so-and-so? Even if they don't know the person, it shows that you've thought about them, you've done some background work, and you also have this sort of secondary connection potential to, to their life and the work that they've done. And I think as you get through that, then you can also ask people, you know, general softball questions like, you know, what's your purpose with the company? And everybody loves to talk. It's an easy, positive question. It sets the meeting off on a really positive um, foot because they get to talk about their vision, 
what they're most excited about, why they're doing this thing before you get into some of the hard questions about how it's going to work and why they're going to win. Uh, so I think focusing on the relationship is is super important. Second thing is is in product. And and I think here, I always sort of said it's it's less about evaluating the product itself. Like some folks maybe are really, really good at product and, and can make decisions based on actually the quality of the product in front of them. Um, for me, I, I always sort of viewed the product as a proxy for for uh, like an opening for how do you how did the founder make these decisions it gives you an opportunity to ask questions about you know why is the button blue or red is much more important than whether i think it should be blue or red and and so i think talking to a founder about the product decisions they've made encouraging them to demonstrate sort of a deep understanding of the customer problem as well as the product ecosystem um, to show off you know what they know and why they're doing it um, you know, some things I like to ask are like, for example, you know, can you explain to me like a five-year-old what problem you're trying to solve, right? And have them really b- dumb it down, make it super simple. What is the problem you're trying to solve? And then you can you can go through a litany, like, right? Like, does your user know they have this problem or, or not? And if not, why not? You know, how do they solve the problem today? What tools do they use today? How do they become aware of those tools? What's the decision process prior to adoption? You know, all of these things, you can sort of run down these rabbit holes around how deep has a person gone on the customer problem and, and the product that they're building. When you think about the solution, you want to make sure obviously it's solving that problem, but also that it's unique or defensible in, in some way. I think you can ask directly, like, what is unique? What's the unique value you're going to offer? Why is it different? But then I think you can go further and say sort of, okay, if that's why it's different or unique, what are the product principles that are key to delivering this value to the customer? How are you going to do that? What are you optimizing for? And how do those key principles then impact your approach to product management, who you hire, the sequencing, the way you go to market, all these things. And you're looking for consistent sort of through lines in the founder's narrative as you dig on these questions that I think tell you a lot more about how they think about product rather than just evaluating the product itself and, oh, it's beautiful, so therefore they must be good at product. You know, what makes the product easier to use uh, or more valuable for a first-time user as you scale, as you add features? What makes the product harder to stop using over time? You know, and why does it get lock in? And making sure they understand these things. And so I think when you think about asking about product, which is critical, what you're trying to get at, I think, is is their product mindset more so than some evaluation of the actual product that they've already built, or even you know the the mock-up that they're showing you and, and sort of how how well designed it is. Um, as you as you move to market, um, I think I think you really want to figure out from the founder's point of view why they think this category needs to exist um, and what the world will look like if the company creates or dominates the category that, that they're going after. Um, I think I tend to, to focus more on how they read the market, sort of the forces that are at play, the competition, um, the structure of the market itself, sort of the architecture rather than the, the size of the market. Um, I think, I think m- more great investments have been missed because people thought market size was too small. Um, and and either didn't understand how large a niche could be, um, or didn't understand how actually market creation uh, would occur, either because of some fundamental technical change, societal change, or um, you know some insight that that somebody had. And so I think in that case, looking for clarity about the market forces, um, and and sort of asking about you know what what do they see as the structure of the market? Who are their competitors today? Why is it that way? Why has this market that they're going after evolved in this way where you have a couple dominant players at the top or where it's fractured and you have lots of service providers and you're going to roll them all up? Um, you know, what do they think will happen over the next few years? And is there some trend or fundamental shift that they're riding to success that they're sort of seeing before before others? Um, and, and how do they plan to do that? I think as you do this, you can listen for the assumptions um, that they're making, which I think is a great way to, I'm not a fan of case interviews, but to the extent that you hear a founder express an answer with an assumption, being able to ask, push on that and say, okay, but what if that plays out differently, right? Like what if, what if margins actually don't expand and, you know, you, you're not able to charge the way you think you will uh, in this premium way? Um, you know, what if that doesn't happen? What will you do? What would be the first sign that this is happening? Like, how would you know this was starting to happen? Would it be a competitor kind of undercutting you and offering part of your service for free? Would it be someone accepting a you know loss leader because they have like a bundled product and you're just coming at them with a single solution, et cetera? And then how would you adjust? And so I think getting into the game a little bit of seeing how the founder deals with uncertainty, 
the way they think about adjusting to a new sort of piece of information or, or a new landscape to come around a corner and it looks different than they expected uh, is is a really great thing to learn, particularly in a first in a first interview, because the only thing that is certain is they'll face tremendous uncertainty. And you're you're effectively at the highest level betting on like a founder's ability to navigate that. Uh, and so I think being able to ask specific questions that reveal some of how they would do that um, is much better than sort of grinding somebody on like the way they figured out TAM, um, which just doesn't doesn't sort of seem super interesting. Uh, and I think the last thing to push on, particularly early, and it's much more important than ultimate size, is you know how are they going to hack into the market to start the company? Like, what's their unfair distribution advantage? How do they plan to get sort of some sense of leverage distribution, and you know be able to to get the product up and running, get the flywheel spinning in some way that's unfair that that potentially others don't have, or that really leans on their their unique insights. So like, Steady, for example, is a new EDI company. He he comes out of the um, the the auto parts space, and so he found a way to partner with this auto parts distributor uh, as a way to test his beliefs about EDI, how he could create forms that would get small vendors on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he sort of had this like development partner early, but this development partner happened to have a very very large audience of of lots of sizes, and so that was helped that helped him get to market. That's just just one example. Um, and then the last bit is on um, team and and team obviously is critical and everyone has their own sort of taste in teams. And I think this is the area where, you know, it's, it's completely subjective, but, but I think, um, you know, you, you need to make sure you're picking a team you believe is suited to the opportunity um, that can deliver sort of in the near term. But I also think the reason taste here really matters is because you want to pick sort of folks that seem reasonable to work with and, and that you in particular will be excited to work with. And, and so I think, you know, I, I tend to look for like people with a deep need to win, but not take credit, um, skilled storytellers, because I think that impacts recruiting, selling, fundraising, you know, and then seem reasonable to work with in terms of how they take feedback and their level of curiosity, the stuff that they're excited about, whether they wear good sneakers or not, um, all of those things that are important. And so, so I like to, to ask a couple things about team, you know, to understand their process. Like I, I tend to ask them, what was the last idea they said no to before they committed to this? Um, and why didn't they pursue that idea? Like what was the thinking? And that one's super easy because people can they, can, they can be analytical in a negative way and it gives you a sense of how they might say no to things as they lead the company, um, which, I, which I like. I think to, to understand their priorities, asking people sort of what's the most important thing that happened at the company in the last week is a great question because one, there's always something, or at least there should be, Two, it's a positive and they're excited about it. Um, so they like to talk about it and talk about it a lot. But then three, the thing they pick is probably more indicative of what they think is important to the company than if you just ask them sort of, you know, what are your priorities right now, right? And, and so I think you can, you can get at some deeper understanding of the team by asking questions that sort of carry, carry multiple meaning. There's, there's also, um, you know, things around ego where, you know, I think the if you if you have concerns about team dynamic, one of the hacks I like is if there's two people in the room, talk to the one that's not the CEO and just see how long the CEO will tolerate being ignored. Um, and it can be a little socially awkward, but but it works pretty well. Um, and you can also see when you know if, if you typically it's like CEO CTO, and so if you ask the CTO a question that's more appropriate for the CEO, do they try to answer it because they never get a chance to talk in any meeting, and so they they want to take stage, you hand them the mic and they want to use it, um, or do they appropriately sort of pass it back to the to the CEO in, in that case? So th those are just kind of some some tactical things around product market team and and relationship um, and what I like to ask. The the next section that I wanted to run through and it'll take about ten minutes is sort of thinking about actually the how, like how you actually set up the interview. As I don't know if, if folks have questions on the the what to ask, I'm happy to jump in or or just keep going on the the tactic sort of the how how to set up an interview but you guys let me know yeah i have a quick question when sure. you're talking to a founder you kind of see them as a um like a final product so to speak and i think their context for day today whether you want to invest or not or have you ever done where you like think they're missing some aspect and then mentor them to get there and then fund them i think you can do both i, I i've done both um and i think i think usually though you know, you're not looking for well-rounded people. You're looking for people with spikes that you can potentially amplify. And so in the cases where I've done what you're saying, which is sort of you talk to someone 
you don't quite get there on feeling like you want to invest yet, but then you continue to be in touch with them, continue to support them. And then the round comes together maybe later and you're able to participate. Um, I think that's what you're saying. I, I've definitely done that. Um, but for me, it's been a, it's been a process of figuring out how to amplify their existing strengths rather than figuring out how to mitigate some weakness that I'm concerned about, um, for what it's worth. Uh, my, my last investment actually through first round was an example of that, uh, there's a company called Iggy, um, and Lindsay is amazing. Um, and I was talking to her, she's doing basically Clearbit for, for geo data. And, you know, she was moving from being a data scientist, product manager to being a CEO. And the nice thing was we sort of had time as she was in an accelerator to, to talk through how she was thinking about that evolution. And, you know, I probably spent four months talking to her every other week before we got to the point of investment. Uh, which was great. And we get to build a real relationship before the investment. The other reality though, is the market moves so fast right now that it's just, it's oftentimes, you, you know, by the, when, when someone, when a founder is taking time to talk to an investor, at least when I was sitting at first round, you know, it was typically the case that they were raising money. And so I had to decide more in the binary in the moment. I think as an individual angel, you probably have more opportunity to kind of get to know folks and maybe talk to them months before a round is coming together. Thanks. Hey, Finn. Um, yeah. I was kind of curious. It's like, I like your approach of trying to stay as neutral as possible as going into a deal, but I'm kind of curious if like, you have experiences of when you went predisposed to either like or hate a deal going in and if like the interaction actually changed that like to, to the other way. There have been times where I've gone in hating something and, and came out liking it, um, but those are only in partner meetings because I wouldn't or where a, another partner asked me to take a meeting. Because like if I don't like something, I would never waste it. Like you don't want to waste the founder's time if you're even like 49% yes, right? Like I think I think you should only take a founder's time if you're pretty excited and you want to sort of validate what you're understanding. Um, and that could be that you're not so sure about the business, but the person's amazing, right? It doesn't have to be a complete picture. Um, and so I think uh, many more cases where you sort of are, I've been excited about what my understanding was from reading a deck or, or a referral from someone or maybe a quick phone call with a founder and then had a meeting and realized that my excitement was either a local maxima or like completely fucking wrong. And the thing I should really be excited about was this total other thing that I missed entirely. Right. So like, you know, with glide is a good example. Like when I first heard about glide, I was like, Oh, it's like an app builder. Like who cares? Right. This is like, ah, it's an app builder and the guys are smart and like, you know, but, how many mobile app builders do we really need? And, you know, if you go back to like some of like, like mobile roadie and some of these other things that sort of, you know, they, they never really found these big audiences. And so like, why should I care about Glide? Um, but the teams from Xamarin, they're super smart. I have a chance to meet them. They seem like they're getting some buzz in YC. I can meet them a couple of weeks before demo day. Let me just, I'll take a 45 minute meeting. And as I sat down with David and what became very clear to me in that first meeting was the thing that I was missing completely was that what Glide actually is, is finding a way to take the most broadly understood programming language, which is relational database, and make it read-write accessible on the most broadly distributed computing device, which is the mobile phone, right? And that is, is like this massive opportunity, which has nothing to do with app building or, or sort of what I kind of thought it was. And, you know, I kicked myself because I should have known better, like a team of that quality wasn't going to go after app building. Um, but I'm glad I took the meeting based on sort of the spike, which was quality of team. And, and I sort of took my skepticism around what they were doing and let them tell the beginning of the story so that I was able to get actually what they were doing and apply the right lens. I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's sort of how I thought about that. Cool. Let me, let me jump through some, some sort of question structure, tactical interviewing tips, and then open it up for, for all, you know, all the rest of the questions, if there are any. Um, I just want to make sure I get through this because I think this is actually, um, probably, if, if the stuff before is, is narrowly around investing, I think this is applicable to any style of, of investing or, or maybe even any style of interview. So the first thing I would say is, um, and this, this actually is a reflection of work I've done by studying other types of interviewing not and applied it to my work as an investor um, rather than looking at sort of like the best investors and how they tend to approach them. Um, so one thing just to keep in mind is that the best questions are open-ended. Like they begin with how, what, where, when, why. And they terminate with a question mark. Um, they're direct. They're open-ended, short, not sort of some big long thing with a preamble. And you go on and on and on. Um, you know, the three to five-minute question is terrible. Um, and and they're they're conversation starters that encourage expansive answers that produce sort of like more information than you were looking for. 
um, and, and help you kind of round out the full picture of the story, right? I think closed-ended questions are, are okay, but the, the use is more limited. So, you know, they're, they're, they're important when you need a direct answer. You know, like, okay, what is the paid acquisition cost? If someone, you know, it's closed-ended, but it puts you on record um, and it allows you to sort of use that as a building block maybe for the next open-ended question. But I think for the most part, open-ended questions are much better. You know, can you walk me through how you're acquiring customers? And then just stop, let them answer the question. Can you, you know, and then you can dig, well, what does it cost? And you can ask direct questions within that narrative. But I think open-ended questions are far better than closed. And then the thing to really avoid, which I think particularly, again, operators with experience tend to do this, is sort of the double-barreled question or even triple-barreled questions, right? So one, you give the person you're asking a, a choice of which one do they want to do they want to answer, so they can sort of pick, right? Like you say, like, so what's what's churn and why do people cancel? And now they can pick whichever one they want to talk about, and you're not going to get the answer that you're really looking for. The the other thing is if you sort of say, okay, you know, what would you do if X happened? That's a good hypothetical, versus the narrowness of information you gather when you say if X happened, would you do Y? Now you're much more in a yes or no, or like you've gone down the funnel a little bit. And then even worse is like, if X happened, would you do A, B, C, or D, right? And that's like the classic operator, terrible question, because you're thinking of all the things you might do. And then you're looking for the founder just to like figure out, okay, which one do you think is the smartest? And I'm just going to say that one, because then you're going to think I'm the smartest because I agree with you. But that doesn't teach you anything about the founder. It just teaches you they're good at reading you. And it's not, not helpful. So I think really that trying to be open-ended. Another thing just to think about in general as you as you uh, hone your interviewing practice is is to ask, and I would ask all of you, like, are you comfortable with silence? So that's like eight seconds. I've gone as far as 15 seconds and only once if I had somebody see like, are you all right? What's wrong with you, all right? But getting comfortable with silence and asking a question and just shutting up and waiting. People hate silence and they'll fill it, right? And then you just let them talk. So when they, they, you know, you ask a question, you know, what's churn? And they say, oh, well, over the last couple of months, churn's gone down a little bit because, you know, we did this and this um, and it's, you know, whatever percent. And if you just look at them, then they'll keep going and talk about why churn was high and what happened that made it that way or, or the insight that they had that, that took churn from, you know, 40% to 10% and what was it they shifted and how did that impact the rest of the business, et cetera. And so I think, I think working on, the socially awkward thing of getting comfortable with silence is a is a is a really important thing to do. So you create space for the founder to talk beyond their talking points. Um, you know, and it makes sense, right? Like to interview better, you just want to listen more, um, and and it allows the you to learn more about the founder rather than sort of you know the founder learning more about you. Um, you know, and as you as you do that, I think it allows you also to remain flexible and sort of listen for hints, little interesting things that suggest questions that you hadn't thought of. And then that leads me to another point, which is, you know, don't be afraid to ask naive questions, right? Um, and, and even sort of the, the treading water question as you're trying to understand something, sort of the, you know, well, what do you mean by that? Or, or why is that the case um, that just keeps the person talking and helps you learn more about them rather than like, you know, tying something off and then starting a new topic? Um, you know, when you want people to say more, you can always, the classic, like, repeat their answer. Uh, as if you're trying to understand it, like, you know, if I understand you correctly, and then you summarize what you heard, and then they'll always like go one level deeper and, and sort of continue that, that thread. When it's bad is when you're afraid to ask naive questions, right? And I think you, you'll miss tremendous pieces of information, because then effectively, what you're going to take away from the interview is a larger percentage, your assumptions about the answers, your connections of the dots, rather than the founder doing that for you. And so I think it's really important when your goal is for you to make a better decision, the belief that if you can gather better information, your like your judgment will improve linearly. But if you can step change the information that you're applying your judgment to, you can step change your the quality of decision making. And so I think being willing to ask those naive questions, um, being willing to kind of keep the founder talking, and to make sure that the interview is mostly them telling you things rather than than you telling them, you know. And then at the end of the day, when you think about your interview. Like the, the goal of gathering that data and asking yourself as you come out of the interview, because this is an iterative process. And unlike actually making investment decisions where like you don't fucking know if you're right for five years, seven years, 10 years, you have no idea, right? And even if you have a, you know, it looks like you're right, 
you might be wrong still. Like, you know, things can fall apart. So I think the feedback loops are really long on the actual investments. But the founder interviews, that happens really frequently. And I used to have a practice of, of, and I still will do this, is like sending out anonymous uh, feedback surveys to founders. And that was the information I got back was amazing. Um, you know, was I prepared? Was I on time? Did I pay attention, et cetera? Um, but I think you can also ask yourself some things as you come out of the interview. Like, do I understand enough about this company to state my thesis clearly, support it with quotes from the founder, like facts that I go find after the fact, documentation, et cetera? What are the spikes in this opportunity that get me to a yes? Um, and then potentially, like, what am I concerned about? Um, but but having a very specific set of reasons that you're excited to invest and that you can back up with sort of documentation just for yourself, I think, is a great practice to know if you're getting better. And you can you'll realize, like, oh, I actually I don't. And maybe that means you're not ready to make the investment decision. Maybe it means you want to talk to the founder more uh, or maybe you just make the investment decision anyway. But but for the next interview, you, you do a better job. You know, do I do I have enough information to write a coherent list of things I would like to verify or learn more about? Like, did you take good notes on the things that you didn't understand or that sounded off to you that you want to verify after the fact? And then I think, you know, coming out of a meeting, knowing in your in your heart, like, should I invest my capital? And more importantly, my time, like, will I look forward to working with these founders? Have I learned enough about them to get a sense um, of this? And, and just sort of keep reminding yourself throughout the interview that when you leave, the one thing you're going to do is you're going to make a decision. You're going to decide yes, you're going to decide no, or you're going to decide to learn more. And your job in that 45 minutes, in addition to making the founder like you so you can get in if, if you want to, is to be able to make forward progress on that effort. Um, and I think a lot of people lose track of that. And so you have a great conversation with a smart person, but you don't actually learn the pointed things that you need to know in order to drive your investment decision. Those are, those are kind of some, some how, how to's that I've picked up from, from a bunch of reading and then also a bunch of practice across lots and lots of founder interviews. Um, hopefully that's all helpful. And, and I'm obviously happy to um, share whatever answer questions or, you know, generally kind of be available, obviously to, to all of you. I'm super excited to be spending time in this cohort. And this is just kind of a piece of how I've approached the craft of venture. And it's just one piece. I think sort of the product mindset is, is the broader thing. And the interview is, is sort of one, one piece of that. So hopefully this has been helpful. Totally. Thank you, Finn. This is this is fantastic. We're going to open it up to uh, to, to Q and A. Uh, Ryan, would you uh, would you like to ask your, your question first? Sure. Thanks. Uh, hey, thanks, Finn. I wanted to ask you, how do you get from being excited about ten thousand investments to uh, only investing in sixty? And what does it look like from taking all the information inputs that you have and getting down to an actual yes or no? Um, you know, is it is it more like uh, some kind of discussion? or consensus, kind of like benchmark, uh, my, my understanding from the process, or is it more like there's a kind of rigorous checklist like Andreessen Horowitz has? My process, like I can talk about the first round process, which was not not consensus, but majority. But for me personally, the, the process is really about looking for those spikes in the founder, in the opportunity, um, sort of those things that, that seem almost unbelievable, like the anomalous things. Um, and then, you know, being able to uh, you know, to believe that those anomalous things uh, and the fundamental understanding that the founder holds are also the things that will provide high leverage to building a massive business. And so, you know, the the Glide example I gave before, you know, you take that that thing, which was very, it was like almost like that feeling of surprise is what you're looking for. Like you're in a meeting and you want that feeling of surprise. Like if someone, like if right now for all of you, there was a super loud noise behind you and you jump, that feeling you have in, in your body when that happens, like that's almost what you're looking for in the meeting with founders, I think, and that you're you're sort of shocked by something um, and then you dig into it and it turns out to be true. And then you believe that that truth is is the foundation of a very, very large opportunity. And, and so I think that's, those are the kind of steps to go from, you know, 10,000 to, to 60 or, or whatever. Uh, Finn, I'll just to piggyback off that a bit, I wanted to ask you, um, so of the 63 that you've done, a number of them have, have turned out great. Some of them, you know, perhaps haven't turned out great yet, or or didn't work out, and you still thought it was a good bet. And then there's probably even a smaller number, if if any, that you're like, well, if I can go back in time, I I, I wouldn't have done it for X Y Z reason. Like even at the time, you know, yeah. yeah. And so, without obviously, you're not going to name any specific companies or even give it away. But just what are the characteristics of like what would you have told yourself in that moment? Like to the extent that you ever made a mistake in, in your eyes. What does that look like? 
Yeah, so I think I think the uh, there's definitely those. I mean, there's all of those things. Um, in if I look at those 63, and I think in particular, like the you know when you look at like my first three years at at first round, you know, it was sort of like it was an education very clearly, and and you know like the the multiple on the money that I sort of deployed through first round in my first three years is like 1.23 or something. So it was like didn't it wasn't a zero, but it wasn't like what you look for. The next three years, or if you look at the next three that's where you started to see like the notions and the blue aprons and the clovers and, um, and that has a great multiple. And then I think as you come into kind of like the last like three or four years, things are too early, but I think there's some really good potentials kind of like large companies in there. Um, and, and I think the, the thing I would focus on the most is I, I didn't pre early on, I didn't appreciate enough the physics of a business and just kind of like the importance of business model how you're actually going to make money, the friction inherent in that model. And would sort of, um, I think I was pretty good at identifying like the, the island of innovation that we were all going to live on with the palm trees and the pina coladas and, you know, sort of the beautiful life. But I wasn't as good at sort of doing the work to figure out the bridge or the tunnel or however we were all going to get there and, and what actually needed to be built. And so, um, you know, there's, there is a company where there's sort of like uh, a, a fundamental bet on sort of some piece of unit economics that looking back was basically impossible, right? And, and like, that was just, just a wrong bet. You know, and then I think there are things that were where you make a bet that doesn't work out, right? So like um, electric objects is one where like, you know, didn't work out. But I think when I look at the reasons I made that investment, what I was excited about, the potential there, like I would make that bet again, knowing what I knew at the time, right? And, and I feel like that was a good investment with a bad outcome. Um, the ones that really kill me are actually, uh, so like the first example is one where I made a bet that was just stupid. Like I, it was just a bad decision and I was betting on something that I should have known wouldn't come out. I should have known it would end up the way it ended up. Electric objects is one where like I made the bet, it played out in a way that wasn't successful, but knowing what I know, I would going, I would make that bet again. The ones that are the worst are the ones where you think you're betting on one thing. But in fact, the thing that either makes a company successful or failure is something totally different that you completely miss, right? And I think those are the ones that that really, you know, are painful, right? Because you're you're sort of saying like you're as an investor, you have you're kind of betting on this thing, you want it to play out this way, you're you're focusing your attention on that, and you know, it turns out that actually the key driver of this business is something that you weren't even aware of. And sometimes like the tide rises and hides those rocks, and and it works out. But a lot of times it doesn't. And, and I think that's those are the most painful ones. Hey, Finn, thanks uh, so much for sharing all this. I think this has been great. Um, how, you know, given all of this and your track record and kind of the stages you shared about your time at first round, how are you thinking about what you want to do next? <laughs> um, I was joking with Jack earlier that he, he said, how solo capitalist life. And I said, the, the solo part's good. The capital is still in waiting. Um, the... Uh, I, yeah, so I'm 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 trying to figure out. Like I I um there's it's funny. I was talking to someone about investing just as a craft. I know I want to be an investor. Like for me, there's no greater professional joy than seeing something in someone that that they don't maybe even see yet and helping them believe it, and then doing everything you can and having the resources either through platform or personally to um to 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 allow them to amplify their success, right? And, and to improve their odds of, of generating tremendous impact. And, and so for me, that's that's why to be an investor. The thing that I say this, like when you work with other people, other people will absolutely deform your investment lens. Like they will change the way you look at the world. And the question is whether they act as corrective lenses or they make it blurrier, right? And, and so I think there's this process of sort of trying to find people that, when they deform your investment judgment, they deform it in a way that makes it better um, rather than makes it worse. And, and I think that's really hard to find. So, so for me, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I know I want to be an investor. I don't know if I want to do that alone or with others. I don't know if with others means joining an existing platform or starting something and, and pulling in a group, um, but very much in the early stages of, of sort of those conversations and, you know, feeling like I have some ideas around a, a new platform that has a reason for being like my my other challenge is like my mental model is the world doesn't need another vc firm so like it's hard to say i'm just going to go like you know we all sell coffee and i'm just going to have the best coffee shop on the block like i don't i don't want to operate that way and, and so i think for me to start something it would have to have it like a real reason for being and i have some ideas about that 
And then also, you know, there there are a couple groups that I think are are interesting. Obviously, lots of people I have respect for, but like the combination of respect for, believe in their model, and believe that working with them would both make me a better investor and they would deform my judgment in the right way, and that I could do that for them is a super super high bar. Um, and I'm just not not sort of through that process yet. Is there something? As just a quick follow on, is there something either? through your time so far at OnDeck or not, just in kind of since OnDeck has started with this cohort, is there something that has changed for you in kind of more recent time? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a bunch of learning I've done recently. Like I think, um, you know, a couple of mental models I'm playing with right now. Um, one, uh, it used to be that if, if someone wanted to be an investor and they wanted to raise outside capital, that it was very clear the process that they were going to go through. Like they were going to raise as much as they could for fund one, probably raise a similar amount to... 150% of that for fund two. And then fund three was the one that was institutional if they were successful or they go back to an operating role. Like that was kind of the path, right? And so you kind of had this like 25, 25 to 50, 100 plus was like the success path. Um, in talking with a bunch of folks, you know, sort of through through on deck as well as just in general who are thinking about being investors and investing other people's capital right now, I actually think a large percentage of people don't view that as the success path anymore. And that there's a ton of really, really good investors who kind of say, no, I'm good with like 10 or 20 million bucks. I, I would like to do that. I would like to have the flexibility to fit into rounds rather than have to lead. I'd like to have the flexibility to make one investment a month or five, depending on how I'm feeling, um, but not have the need to deploy sort of some amount of capital every quarter, et cetera. And, and that my desire is to drive multiples, not to sort of aggregate fees. Um, and sort of the shift back to success as successfully operating in this craftsman style. Another just thing I've been thinking about is is like most people, I think, believe we're sort of in the, when it comes to the economy or technology, like we're in the ninth, 12th or 15th inning of the sort of this like expansion that we've seen, particularly in tech. Um, and recently I've been kind of wondering, like, I don't know if this is true or not, but like, what if naturally... Amazon is actually a $30 trillion company, not a $2 trillion company. And Apple is a $25 trillion company. And like the exits are in fact much, much, much larger. And that that is what we should expect. Like how will that change kind of the capital stack in the private markets? And what does that mean about where um, you should be investing, uh, you know, your time and energy um, in in terms of kind of the practice of venture and, and, you know, can you drive, you know, big multiples at sort of some of the later stages. And I sort of wonder about that just as I think the, the idea that exits are not getting bigger, but prices are going up is kind of been proven untrue by like if Snowflake can go public and be bigger than Goldman Sachs, like I think we should argue the exits are actually getting bigger and maybe the belief that, you know, 15 times EBITDA is the like critical mass, like that is the end state of any company that's public. Like maybe any company other than tech enabled companies. And when you look at like, where Nike is right now based on sort of deciding and declaring that their competitive frontier is digital, not physical, you know, they're seeing their multiple expand. Um, and, and so maybe the natural state of, you know, EBITDA multiples for tech companies is 30, not 15 or, or 45, right? And if that's the case, all these companies are actually undervalued today, not overvalued. And like, I'm not saying I believe that yet, but it's, it's sort of this interesting, um, as I think about having a blank piece of paper and where I want to work, these types of things is stuff I've been been thinking about. Thank you. So then, um, can you speculate more a bit on the, uh, just on where you see venture going? I mean, you sort of hinted that maybe you see sort of less um, sort of fat firms and, and more decentralization or, um, mm-hmm. you know, at first round, you guys were really innovating, sort of like thinking about the the, the platform and firm as a, and, you know, productizing venture capital. I'm sure you did a bunch of experiments with, with data and, and on all yep. sourcing, on evaluating. Um, where do you see things going over the next like five to 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we'll see a continued fracturing of the capital base. Like my, my general belief is like, just like over the last call it 10 years for simple, simple numbers, like you saw this explosion of entrepreneurship in large part due to availability of information and access. Right. So, you know, we haven't solved a lot of the diversity issues and so forth, but the idea that, you know, being an entrepreneur is not this crazy thing that no one knows how to do unless like you grew up in the Valley or went to Stanford or worked at, you know, some big tech company. Um, and that it is a global movement uh, with lots of information about how to do it and lots of information about how to be really good at it, access to the tools that you need, the resources, mentorship, et cetera. 
my belief is the same thing's gonna happen to investing and that you're gonna see this explosion of you know folks allocating capital um and and that 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 decentralization will be driven by you know access to information but also just when you break down what investing actually is you know access is the primary thing and so people with access um, and good judgment should be able to apply capital to that. Uh, and I think, I think the world will evolve to allow that to take place. Um, I think at the same time, the, the reality of kind of the aggregator firms, um, you know, building up these massive pools of capital means that at, you know, at some stage, below some stage, they just can't pay attention to you. And so you're, if you want advice and guidance, you're going to need individuals that know what the hell they're talking about. And if they're doing it full time and they can be super helpful and they're dedicated, even if it's a small check, if it's meaningful to them, they will be impactful to the company. And I think entrepreneurs sort of leaning in that direction makes sense. So like a a continued fracturing of the capital base, um, I think will continue. Yeah, it seems like we're seeing like some people even start like slinging Series A checks as if they were like angel. No, that's right. I mean, I think think we'll see how that plays out. Like, Like right now, my guess is that a huge piece of the bias to take an individual, and this isn't this isn't a knock on the individuals that are writing these checks, but I would argue that a huge piece of the bias to take a $10 million check from an individual who you meet with for seven minutes and who can commit on the spot is the fact that you meet with them for seven minutes and they commit on the spot. Like, it's impressive. Like, it's, you know, and as a founder, like, holy shit, this person believes in me. And I think it speaks to ultimately what all founders want which is psychological safety and someone who believes in them as they go through this fucking crazy thing of building a company. Um, and so if you can express that by committing on the spot to a large check, I think it's very, very powerful versus like, I love this. Let's go talk to 10 people that you've never met before and do this whole, like, it's just, you know, it's not worth it. And particularly when increasingly that check from this very large firm doesn't come with a lot of, of you know, specific attention from a given partner. Because as the firms get bigger, even a $10 million check is less and less meaningful to them, right? As a percentage of their capital and, and what they require to get back uh, versus for an individual, I think it is obviously, it is meaningful. Even if they have, you know, $200 million behind them, a 10 or $15 million check is, is a big deal. Um, and they're going to care and they're going to do work, um, you know, to sort of make that valuable. So I think. How, how do you think about speed? Um, I remember Josh Kaufman had a tweet that was like, a decade ago, it used to be 90 days between first meeting and investment, and now it's like nine days. Yeah. Um, and you just mentioned, you know, seven minutes um, for, for some people. Yeah. How, 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 do you, how do you think about it? The way I think about speed is I think, I think investors compete on three things, speed, price, and product, right? And that, that's what you compete on. And so I think you have to figure out as an individual investor, like, what do you want to compete on? Um, and it's pretty easy to compete on price, uh, which is part of why I'm thinking through this whole, like, what if, what if the exits are actually bigger? And so I think you need to decide as an investor, like, what are your vectors of competition? Um, and how do you define your product? How are you going to compete? What do you offer an entrepreneur? What is your decision process? How fast are you willing to, to do things? And how can you make sure you set appropriate expectations so that you can exceed them versus have people waiting for you to make a choice? Um, you know, and then on price, I think you have to decide, are you, are you mostly tucking into things um, or are you setting price? And then even if you're tucking in though, it's very, very different to sit with somebody and be like, I'm in for 25K. Like, I don't care. Like, you let me know where it prices, but I'm in for 25K versus like, my typical investment's 25K. Let me know as you have terms and I'll tell you if I'm in. Like, those are two very different things. And that's, that's how you play price as an angel. But I think, I think you have to decide, like, how, how do you want to do it? And it'll impact your returns one way or the other. Uh, but you have to make those decisions. So I think when I think about speed, you know, I think a lot of that just has to do with, with the, the way you make decisions. Um, and certainly faster is better for a founder. Um, and if you're fighting for allocation, there's tremendous value in that. I mean, you know, for anyone who's raised money, like the investor that you sit with for 45 minutes who writes you an email that night about how excited they are to invest and they'd love to partner with you. And this is like, you know, where do they, where do they sign the safe and where do they wire? Like that carries a lot of weight. And, and even if that's not the process you go through, when it comes time to allocating the round and they're looking at that Google sheet and like people's requested allocations and what they're going to give them, I think that early commitment carries a ton of weight. My, my understanding was that at first round, angel track was, was, was your baby. You, so you've seen a lot of, you know, a bunch of angels go, go through it and, you know, it's, uh, maybe it's been a couple of years now, so you've seen them grow. For sort of angels in this group, what, what have you sort of seen as sort of like 
the angel learning curve or what are some you know patterns that you've seen that people accelerate that curve or yeah. what, what advice might you have based on your experience? Yeah. So, so, uh, angel track really, it was like, yeah, Ben and I kind of came up with that and Ben did most of the work. So he should get a lot of the credit, but yeah, we came up with that. And then now Alex is doing it. She's amazing. The, the number one thing I would say is angel investing can be very unstructured. And I think the more you can create structure for yourself, the better, right? Part of why I talk about interviewing and having structured interviews is because you, you want to practice a craft and be able to sort of build on your experience and you know, get better quickly. Um, and so that, that learning curve will be steeper if you have sort of structured approaches and you can say like, I've done this thing 10 times and the 10th time I did it, I was five times better than the first time I did it. Okay, that's good. Now I'm gonna focus on something else. In terms of financial structure, I think that's probably the biggest one where you know, I, I would guess that um, you know, people talk about like portfolio and should you have more or fewer companies um, from a financial perspective. I actually don't think the odd, like if you say like I have, you know, whatever, $100,000 or a million dollars, whatever the number is to invest in companies over the next, you know, year. If you invest in 10 companies or 20 companies, I don't think you're actually skewing the odds that you find the big winner by that much, right? Like you're going from, you know, half a percent to like 0.75%. Like you're not going from 2% to 25% if you go from 10 companies to 20 companies. So I don't actually think that's the point. I think the reason to do it is because it's just more iteration. It's more times to try something. It's more wash, rinse, repeat. And, and so I think I would encourage people to have a smaller check size and make more investments early um, because anything you lose financially, you're going to make up for that with learning and therefore get into the next really good thing um, and, and do a better job as an investor. And so I think the number one way to steepen your learning curve is to make more smaller investments. Um, it also lowers the bar on like, how do you win? How do you get in? Like if you have a reasonable relationship and you're, you're not going to be value detracting, like getting $10,000 into a company should be doable. You know, founders will oftentimes say, oh, you need 50K, but they'll lower the, the minimum amount. It's totally fine. So I would say like more investments um, have the same dollar amount every single time. Like the people who get in real trouble are like, but I was so excited. I wrote a hundred K check. And you're like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and, and like at first round we, we had, a thing where you know you'd you'd have convictions or like one to five basically, there was zero correlation between average like if everything was a five versus if it was like a three point one to get through like zero correlation between that score and success of the company, and so I think my view is you really don't know, and over time you develop taste and you start to get a sense, um, but I think that the um, early on a fixed dollar size, a target number of investments. And then doing the work to, to really be thoughtful about how you're improving your actual craft, your process, rather than worrying about outcomes um, is, is the best thing to, to focus on. Finn, if I can jump in here real quick. Um, thanks sure. for doing this, by the way. And, and thanks for yeah, doing the pitch event as well. Um, so something I noticed just while you were running the pitch event last week and, and now here as well, you rarely, if not ever, use the word deals to describe um, your investments. I, I hear you use the word opportunities a lot, and I definitely love that. How do you think, if at all, that has influenced your mindset and the way that you think about it, investing in founders? Yeah, I think I think um, I, I as a product person, like you know, I, I started in physical products, and so sort of very obsessive about lots of little things. And you know, when you're when you're sitting in a factory in China at two in the morning arguing about like the added cost of like rolling the leather and stitching it in a certain way, like you, know, you sort of get um, obsessive about certain things. And so as I've thought about the, the product that I put in the market, I think, um, you know, deals are things that are transactional and, and ultimately I don't want to be successful by doing good deals. Like I just don't want to define my success that way. Um, I want to define success by forming unbelievable partnerships with amazing people. And my belief is that, you know, success for me, like if, if, if founders that I partner with, when they're done with the company, for whatever reason, either it's a smoking hole in the ground and they need another job, it's a tremendous success and they don't want to be a public company CEO or, or more probably like for personal professional reasons, somewhere in between those two outcomes, they decide it's right to step away. Like if, if in that moment, that founder would say, one, I couldn't have contributed more to the success of the business. I couldn't have been more personally impactful. I couldn't have grown more as a leader. And two, Finn was instrumental in unlocking that for me. Like that's a great partnership. And I think that if I can form a series of great partnerships that the financial outcomes will take care of themselves, 
and and that like because I have so little control of the financial outcome, uh, measuring myself against it is is probably not particularly in the near term the, the right way to think about it. And so, deal I think a successful deal is all about the financial outcome. Um, and so, for me, I tend to call it you know an opportunity or a partnership because that's how I think of the relationship, and that's the vector by which I measure the success. Um, and obviously, you know, over time, like I need to do some good deals. I need some clear bits and notions and, you know, those things like you need those. Um, but I think uh, the thing that I have control over and the thing that I can measure is the quality of the partnership. And so I tend to, to refer to it that way. But it's just a, it's a reflection of maybe some like OCD product mindset that I that I have. Uh, but but I do think that stuff matters. Like when you when you talk to an entrepreneur, you, you know, like if an entrepreneur was to overhear you talking about their company and you're talking about the deal this great deal you found versus this amazing opportunity to partner with her. And she's this, you know, like I think she's much more likely to want to work with you in the second case than the first. That's it. Finn. Thanks again. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.